Welcome to Snap Sessions, a podcast that looks at artists and activists and their creative pursuits, as well as producing articles on politics and entertainment. My name is Doug Nunn. I'm joined by Techmeister producer Marshall Brown and by our artist activist of the show, film production designer Aaron Hay. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions or through the link in the snap sessions website the snapsessions.com and also the link in our show notes thanks to our snappus maximus contributors ron hawksbrook and rick and henny newman and to our supportive snappers ellen athens peter and sheila jowers kathy white dominie jowers john bird gabriel geiger and christine samus other contributors include Steve Weingarten and Jerry Shook. These supporters help keep Snap Session snapping. Join the Snap Sessions family today. This is the introductory music from The Day the Earth Stood Still, where an alien spacecraft weaves its way through our solar system as it heads towards Earth. As a young boy watching this film for the first time, I was enthralled as I imagined meeting the alien Klaatu, and I stayed fascinated with the idea of spaceflight as I buried myself in science fiction movies and books throughout the 1960s. Forbidden Planet, Star Trek, Lost in Space, 2001 A Space Odyssey. And then it was further rekindled when George Lucas's Star Wars premiered in 1977. But the realities of what astronauts or cosmonauts might face rarely entered my thoughts. So you could just get on a spaceship and show up on another planet, oxygen and food supply totally secure, right? Well, that notion of the supposed ease of spaceflight was put to a test as I watched the 2016 film The Martian, starring Matt Damon as an astronaut marooned on Mars. Based on a 2011 novel by Andy Weir, the book and movie seem to go out of their way to seem plausible, to show that surviving on Mars by oneself could even be possible. Yet I admit I was dubious throughout the unraveling of the entire story. To recap... It's the year 2035, and the crew of the Ares 3 is exploring Mars when a severe dust storm threatens to topple their Mars Ascent Vehicle, or MAV. As the crew evacuates, one of their member astronauts, Mark Watney, Matt Damon, is struck by debris and presumed dead by the rest of the crew. They take off, leaving the hapless Matt Damon to wake up with a bad headache on a planet millions of miles from home. A series of fortunate and highly unlikely events unfolds, including Matt Damon's extraordinary resourcefulness. I'm gonna have to science the shit out of this. And a wonderful amount of cooperation amongst Earthling space agencies. Damon is rescued and brought back to Earth. Among his extraordinary feats, raising potatoes for himself on Mars, using his own poop as fertilizer. Even more extraordinary, he stays sane over the course of 543 souls, approximating 600 days. The mind boggles at the good fortune and extraordinary feats of this interstellar Robinson Crusoe. But apparently, 
I am right to be skeptical. In spite of dreams by Elon Musk, Richard Branson, and various planetary space programs, right now, human beings are fairly limited by the amount of spaceflight they can endure. According to a recent Washington Post article entitled, The Many, Many Reasons Space Travel is Bad for the Human Body, flying out of the Earth's orbit causes motion sickness almost immediately, and the nausea, dizziness, headaches, and confusion can last for days. Multiple symptoms known as puffy face bird leg phenomenon then develop as blood and other bodily fluids rush to the upper body in low gravity and stay there, swelling heads and shrinking legs, muscles atrophy and blood volume drops, and with less blood to pump, the heart weakens and becomes more rounded. Doused with radiation, many immune cells die and immunity is lowered. Inflammation spikes throughout the body contributing further to heart disease, while bone density thins by about 1.5% per month. Interplanetary osteoporosis, here we come. And then, there is the likelihood that isolation in space will have unknown effects on the human psyche. We're talking about the probability of low morale, mood swings, irregular sleep rhythms, and difficulty in interpersonal interactions. According to NASA's famous biosphere social isolation experiment in the 1990s, where an eight-person crew attempted to survive together, the crew endured highly stressed interpersonal interactions, aloof behavior, broken contacts between crew members, and finally, a joint failure to sustain the air recycling system and food supply. Speaking of food supply, let's consider how we would supply a crew on its way to Mars. NASA estimates that a three-year Mars mission would require around 24,000 pounds of food, most of it in the form of pre-cooked, dehydrated meals of about 1.5 pounds a portion. That means no ice cream for three years. Yikes! And, of course, on the International Space Station, water is presently limited to 11 liters per day, that's 2.9 gallons. So much for getting extra thirsty between Mother Earth and Elon Musk's Martian Wonderland. And then there is the gaping question of how we presently take care of Earth's atmosphere. It is said that the full extent of Earth's atmosphere might reach to 300 miles, but by about 20 miles, we don't find many breathable molecules of oxygen. According to Al Gore's Climate Reality Project, we presently pump over 160 million tons of man-made global warming fossil fuel pollutants into the lower atmosphere every 24 hours. And beyond that is all the space trash we've put up into the atmosphere since Sputnik launched back in 1957. A recent National Geographic article tells us that in more than 60 years of space activity, more than 6,050 launches have resulted in some 56,450 tracked objects orbiting our planet, of which over 28,000 remain in space and are regularly tracked by the United States Space Surveillance Network. Only a small fraction, about 4,000, are intact operational satellites. Around 11% are the spent upper stages of rockets, launch adapters, etc. It is expected that in the future, Collisions of these objects will become the dominant source of space debris. Apparently, the first accidental in-orbit collision occurred between two satellites over Siberia in February 2009. Both satellites were destroyed and spewed more than 2,300 trackable fragments across the atmosphere 770 kilometers above our planet. Further analysis shows that with our present annual launch rates of around 110 spacecraft per year, with a forecast of 10 to 11 breakups per year, 
the amount of garbage in space is bound to increase. In short, we have already pooped all over our atmosphere and out into space. In addition, we have a hodgepodge of superfluous space programs from a variety of nations, not to mention corporate space wannabes. Right now, at least 70 different government space agencies are in existence, 13 of which have launch capabilities. Six government space agencies, the Indian Space Research Organization, the European Space Agency, the Chinese National Space Administration, the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, and the Russian Federal Space Agency have full launch capabilities. These include the ability to launch and recover multiple satellites, deploy cryogenic rocket engines, and operate extraterrestrial probes. Only three currently operating government space agencies, the Russians, the Chinese, and NASA, are capable of human spaceflight at this time. But we also have an excess of private space companies jumping all over each other to make money up there. Apparently, there's gold in them there planets. Elon Musk's SpaceX, which established a new model of reusable rockets, has been running regular cargo resupply missions to the International Space Station since 2012. Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin. Yeah. Take a look out of starboard. Oh my God, it looks like a huge. Pecker. And Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic are linking folks up for suborbital space tourism. Virgin Galactic is running test flights on its suborbital space plane, offering six minutes of weightlessness during its journey through Earth's atmosphere. Presently, we do not have many laws, treaties, or rules to govern these ventures. There are five foundational UN space treaties, mostly the products of the era of the initial space race between the USA and the Soviet Union. Some of their intentions were good, preventing the militarization and colonization of space, for example. And the UN Office for Outer Space Affairs maintains a registry of objects launched into outer space. But to what extent these measures are effective at responding to Chinese rocket debris falling to Earth or to prevent Russians from testing projectile shooting satellites? It strikes snap sessions that organizing the nations of our planet for the future of space exploration will be a necessity. Many of the national space entities have grandiose notions of their future plans. NASA is apparently talking about future moon missions, one of them being a manned and woman mission to the moon in 2024. More ambitions include placing a space station in lunar orbit sometime in the next decade. Much of NASA's future travel plans involve a state-of-the-art spacecraft called Orion, which will accommodate a four-person crew. Russia, of course, continues to launch humans to the International Space Station aboard its Soyuz spacecraft. And China is planning to launch a multi-module space station capable of housing three Taikonauts and has already launched two orbiting test vehicles. Now more than a dozen countries have the ability to launch rockets into Earth's orbit, with half of them having designed spacecraft that can shed the shackles of Earth's gravity and travel to the Moon or Mars. Who the hell is paying for all this? And why can't Earthlings work together to take on the challenge and costs of space travel? Call me wacky, but wouldn't we save money if we worked together on space programs for the future? In The Martian, it is a Chinese spacecraft that helps the Americans save Matt Damon way up there on Mars. Wouldn't it behoove us to work together as we head into space, where endless piles of money and natural resources will be required to make these programs possible? It seems to me that interstellar travel will be done by robots and artificial intelligence of human design, not by American astronauts or Russian cosmonauts or Chinese taikonauts flying to Alpha Centauri and returning just a few months later. 
These distances are immense and not likely to be doable by human beings, even if we suddenly expand our lifetimes by a few decades. Robots are going to get the credit for deep space travel. But space will have to be explored by Earthling robots, not American, European, Chinese, Russian, Japanese, or Indian robots. Someday, when we do run into an alien, that alien is not going to care what nationality a homo sapien is, but rather that the homo sapien is different from him. We might as well begin to shed nationalism now. It was a concept of mixed results in the 19th century, clearly more asinine in the 20th century when it fueled two world wars, and it will be even more absurd when we beam into space and meet creatures from different galaxies. When Mars attacks, we should respond as one planet, not as a cacophony of provincial knuckleheads. And in the meantime, let's clean up our planet and our atmosphere. There's work to be done here at home, right here on Mother Earth. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon or buy me a coffee. We depend on the support of listeners like you. Hi, I'm here with Aaron Hay, who is an art director and a production designer and has worked on numerous films. And it's really great to have you, Aaron Hay, on Snap Sessions. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, you know, I know you've done a lot of work. We're going to talk about a lot of your movies. You grew up here in Mendocino. You were born in Los Angeles, but yes. your family moved up here when you were young. I heard that um, you were your mom was at Catch a Canoe when you were a kid, and so presumably you did a lot of canoeing on the big river and so forth. Tell us a little bit about your Mendo childhood. Sure. The family moved up here. My grandparents, or actually my one of my aunts and, aunts and uncles moved up here first in like the early 70s, and then grandparents moved up here, and then my family moved when I was a year and a half. We, I think when I was probably six, we moved to the house above Ketchikanu, which is the part of Stanford Inn at this point, right? That right. white house up there. Mm-hmm. My mom sort of ran Ketchikanu down at the river. So yeah, we spent a ton of time on the water. I started canoeing, you know, going up that river when I was quite young. and In fact, I remember going up with a cousin when I was probably seven, and he was a few years older the first time we took a canoe by ourselves and tried to paddle against the current and got stuck uh, yeah. and had to, I think, walk up to Kamchikai Road from the river at some point. But those are the sort of adventures you have in Mendo. And the other thing about that house that I loved that was people dumped their trash there in the 1800s, as well as there was a like a Chinese whaling camp, I believe. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Around this time was when Raiders of the Lost Ark came out. Oh, yeah. Um, so I desperately wanted to be like Indiana Jones. And uh, <laughs> so I had a collection of bottles, and I found like some rings and all this old stuff. We found a whaling knife like that big. My dad had said, there's treasure buried on this property somewhere. Mm-hmm. And then he would go out with this pole, stick it in the ground. The person that owned the property, which uh, had involvement with certain illicit activities had buried an ice chest apparently on the property with cash and forgotten where it was and so that was the (laughs) did you discover no 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 one ever found it Uh but that's why like i started treasure hunting because Mm -hmm. i heard there was treasure on the property and so i found my treasures which were bottles and insulators and little you know 
doodads from the creek bed down below. Now, beside treasure hunting, which of course is way cool, were you like a miniature lover of nature? For sure, like at that time, like you used to be able to camp up Big River, right? So that yeah. was that was so fun. We'd, we'd go up and canoe up, drop a tent and camp out up there, which was which was great. Or just like what we called shrouping. We'd just go out in the woods off trail, just go and see where you end up. Shrouping? Shrouping. Uh-huh. <laughs> was this, is this an Aaron Hay and Friends word? I, I think this is some sort of, yes, late 80s, early 90s mm-hmm. terminology for, so you just go and see where you end up and no purpose other than to just go discover what's out there. And I always felt like our woods were just so safe. They always felt so safe to me. Like, certainly never encountered anything dangerous. You just go out and shroud around and... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And with, with a group of friends yeah. and so on, and your little brother and sister, too. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And later on, we lived further up Kai Road at Toad Hall Farmhouse. So, oh, yeah. So we were next Oh, door. you lived there, too. Yeah. Growing up at that time, it was such a, it was just a magical time and place to be. There was, you know, softball games and volleyball games. And, yeah, it was a great time to be here and a kid. I came in, in my 20s and so, but I realized that a lot of you guys were were really you know, becoming environmental kids, mm. sort of, and then doing a lot of fun stuff. At the time, too, I mean, you were around a lot of artists, and yeah. your, your dad's an artist, too. Did, did, when you were a kid, were you, like, interested in art right away? Yeah, I mean, I think I was always um, stuck between art and science in a way, you know what I mean? Like, I love to just read up on every geeky science thing that there is, and from the time I was a kid, I loved that, and staring at maps. You know, I started painting as a, as a kid with my grandfather and my dad, and, and like my dad would take me to napkin art oh, uh, yeah. at the Seagull, right? So I yeah. remember I remember participating in that and doing napkin art with that on Sunday morning, you know, in 1980 or whatever that was. We had James Maxwell on, oh, of course. course, who was a contributor to the napkin art, and we also did a, a tribute to John Chamberlain. We had a wow. whole episode. So there was two of the great napkin artists of Mendo. So definitely exposed to that and the art side of things, and then had uh, exposure to music early on. Like I had my first band, I say with quotes, in like fifth grade, there was a local, I don't know if you remember Tommy Quinn. Oh yeah, uh, yes. Tommy Quinn, a, a longtime guitar player yeah, here in so, Mendocino. So he taught kids in high school and then we were like these little scrubs. There were three of us and he taught us. So that was myself and Abe Cunningham and Brendan Heffley. We played the 4th of July parade on the back of a flatbed. And I probably we, saw we you. probably did. It was <laughs> 1983 or four. Yeah, great, um, great. And we were all camouflaged. We were called Mendo Corps, like Marine Corps. But, oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think Neil Lubin made uh, the, this logo for us. And mm-hmm. we played the grammar school. But Abe is still playing music to this day. He's the drummer for the band Deftones. And then, of course, getting into high school, Bill Brazil was a huge influence on me. Um, Bill Brazil was a longtime art teacher at Mendocino High School. Yes. In yeah. fact, the art room is still named after him. Is it? Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Yes. Yeah, and there was just last week, there was that opening for a tribute to, to Bill, artists, some other photographers who uh, yeah. showed their work in Mendocino. I started taking art and electronics and audio engineering and computers and video as soon as I could. The ROP Center was a huge influence on me as a kid. I think I was in that audio class with Bob Evans every quarter from my freshman year till my last one in senior year and same with Bill Robert Jan Goshen taught the, the biology and all that sort of that that stuff was really intriguing to me and actually I was thinking back recently the teachers were just so wonderful I just have such great memories of being inspired by these these folks going back to the early days in the in the grammar school Rita Davies my fourth and fifth grade teacher I'm still in touch with so many kids in that class that were inspired by her I, I mean I think back now I had I had model building I had rocket 
building in seventh grade and eighth grade like who, who gets to do that in high school going to the to the rop center you know learning audio engineering and video engineering bob blick was a founder of the electronics uh, program and it's been run for some years now by francis rutherford great who we interviewed for snap sessions yeah. actually about talking about that program yeah i love it and the fact that marshall is still doing the continuation of that world you know mendocino high school is down to less than 200 students now yeah. yet marshall has five classes in the media lab and they're all full and so yeah. electronics is still ongoing the media lab so considering that it's such a tiny place yeah it's it's been amazing they've kept that side of things up. I think even when I was there, we only had 200, 250, because I was a class of fifth, but I know there was a big bubble that came after yeah. my year. Yeah, there's just fewer kids than there was. I feel like that's one of the things that's changed here compared to when I was growing up. There was just kids everywhere, first on their BMX bikes, then their motocross, and then their skateboards. There was a ramp down every street. You know, there was a half pipe in my backyard, and my friend's backyard, and somebody else's backyard, and skateboarding all through town. Now, now, you mentioned you were interested in science from yeah. early on, and then I, you went to UC Santa Cruz, I did, right? yeah. And did you major in science there I at did. UC? Tell us about that. Again, like, super interested in arts, and even in, in high school, I started working at ILM. Yes. Now, ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, your dad was working. He left Mendo when I was probably 10, moved to L.A. for a little bit, and then moved back to Marin County. He had been working as a carpenter here. In 1988, I believe, he was hired as a model builder at Industrial Light and Magic. So when I was 16, going down there for a summer, they offered me a job basically sweeping the floors and taking out the trash, watching everybody. And so I was super intrigued by that, but still a very kind of timid kid and just checking things out, didn't know how I'd fit into this world. And then the next year they, they brought me back again. Shortly thereafter, my dad decided to make the switch to digital very early as that sort of digital revolution. Was Smart happening. move, Jack Hay. Yes, 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 exactly. Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> he saw that coming, so he first learned AutoCAD and then started training himself in Maya and the 3D stuff. He went into the digital world, I believe, in 92. I had that connection with ILM there. So mm -hmm. then I went off to school. I liked doing art for art's sake, and I didn't want to study art. And in a way, I regret it, but I don't have any regrets because that was the perfect thing to do. My experience studying science and marine biology was exactly what I needed. You have to go to school for that, really. Like, right. you know, if you want to learn the detail, whereas, like, I can work with a camera and, and do what I want to do on my own, I felt like I didn't need that same kind of education. So I went in knowing that I was going to be a science major, so I did all the prerequisites, big, you know, organic chemistry and yeah. physical chemistry and calculus and all that sort of nonsense, and then wasn't sure am I going to geology major or an environmental science major. I thought at that point, like, I want to do something in outdoors, and I was super inspired by my uncle Steve Heckeroth and all the work that he did with solar back in the day. His uncle Steve Heckeroth is sort of a back-to-the-lander who invented the first solar tractor that I have seen. Yeah. So, among other things. The first ever electric car I ever drove was a converted Carmen Ghia that he did in probably 1992. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it only went about 40 miles, but boy, was that amazing driving it down Navarro Ridge and being like, there's no engine noise. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You yeah. know, and yeah. things have changed so much. Back at Santa Cruz, I took a class at the beginning of my junior year called field biology with this wonderful professor. And that was spending the day on the beach with elephant seals, just observing, essentially, like doing observational marine biology. I just fell in love with that. It was amazing. Immediately, I got sucked into that, signed up the following term. I saw an, an ad posted somewhere for a professor who was doing studies on stellar sea lions in Alaska. My goodness. I signed up for that and ended up going for three months to a one square mile island 
Wow. <laughs> um, in the middle of nowhere, literally 100 miles off the mainland, very southern tip of southeast Alaska, with three other people who were we were doing the studies on, because stellar sea lions at the time, their population had just started declining precipitously. Uh, we were there to figure out what was the cause. There was a little cabin. We had to go in by helicopter. So that was, it was just this amazing experience. I ended up living most of the time in just a little, like with what they call the bomb shelter tent, this really tough rainproof tent uh-huh. uh, in this magical rainforest with granite spires in the middle of the sea. It felt like... Wow. When we, to contact the outside world, we would have to use a marine radio, but we had to call ourselves the Lowry Island because uh-huh. they wouldn't accept our call if we were calling from land. So, and, and it was basically like if you climbed to the tallest spire, you could see the island had a wake, you mm-hmm. know, from the movement of the, anyway, wow. it was the most magical experience and it opened my eyes to so many things. But it also, it exposed that rift in my brain between art and science. So I went out there with, with a camera, obviously I was so focused on that, just taking you know, brought all this film and halfway through the process, my light meter broke. And so I had to just use what I'd been taught by Bill to look at the light and try and expose based on my, what I could imagine it would, it would, it would be. All my film turned out, by the way. Mm-hmm. You know, so, Amazing, so yeah. Training, yeah. Well trained. We were just there doing observational science, but then these other scientists came in to actually take blood work and, and samples and we had to grab these, these pups and weigh them and take blood samples and climb around in the horrible smelling seal poop, for lack of a better word. There's nothing like being covered in dead seal slash poop. But so they were there and I felt like, ah, oh, that's, like, I don't really want to do that kind of science. I don't want, because that's basic, most people in sciences do lab work. I was studying genetics and things at the time. And so saw these folks and I'm like, I don't want to do that. And then I met this, that we also had a National Geographic photographer come out and spend wow. about, about three weeks with us on the island. And wow. so we'd help out. I'd carry his backpack full of stuff and like help him out occasionally. This amazing photographer named Joel Sartor, who's still mm-hmm. working for National Geographic. I'm a regular National Geographic guy since yeah. 1980 or something. Amazing. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So I saw the way he worked and, you know, he's like, I shoot a thousand rolls of film on an assignment. I have 200 rolls of film just for this island that we're doing here. The process is I don't even get to see these pictures until my editors have whittled it down to 100 pictures out of that thousand rolls and I thought that's not what I want to do either so I was always just sort of like I couldn't figure out where where I fit so now you're in your early 20s I am yeah I'm sort of 20 years old at this Mm -hmm. point had this amazing experience go back to Santa Cruz finish my degree in marine biology do I might did my thesis on the reproductive behavior of elephant seals. I thought, okay, I love this. I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to go back to grad school, move to San Francisco, thought I'd get a job and save for a couple of years while I'm taking the GRE and stuff. And then ILM had a job for me and I went in and voila, I got sucked into that world and never left. Yeah. So you're, you're there, you're 21 years old, you've got an opening at ILM and you get to be a model builder. So I start out as, again, like an assistant, a technical assistant. Okay. So, so I'm, again, sweeping the floors, taking out the trash, but more and more they're letting me, there's mentors there who are like, you know, come in over here for a little while and watch how this is done, yeah. you know? And I'm thinking I haven't studied how to make a mold or, or how to work with fiberglass or the metal shop or anything like that. I got to just watch everybody figure out what to do. My story there was I kind of discovered, similar to what my dad did, I saw this computer in the laser room. Like I could sit at the computer, figure out how to learn it. And then I could do things that nobody else could do. And it gave me an in. There were a few people, a few of us that sort of like took this path. And you're kind of a digital native compared to your uh, 
gadget generation. Right, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. I was around computers my whole life, and you know, even if it was a new technology for me, it was like, okay, I can, I can get this. Like, mm-hmm. let's figure this out. And I look back on, on it now, and it definitely was one of those pivotal moments where, where I discovered this technology that brought me into a new way of seeing the world. We would use this machine called a laser cutter, which was essentially a flat bed that could cut a sheet of any material, you know, wood or plastic, essentially. We would build these things out of plexiglass. Mm-hmm. So if I needed to build a skyscraper or I needed to build a bridge or anything like that, we could break that down into planes, essentially. And I started seeing the world in planes. I could look at this room, for instance, and see how I would build it with a laser cutter. Perspective alteration. It was, Mm -hmm. it truly was, Mm -hmm. where coming from out in the island in Alaska, it's a very, you know, brain shifty thing. And I sort of realized like, okay, here's something I can do that I'm pretty good at, that not a lot of other people can do. So I found my niche there. And so I went from like the young helper. And then a couple years later, I was the young gang boss, essentially with a crew of 50 people building miniature sets for Star Wars. Now I want to find out a few details leading up because this is for me fascinating. You're starting out as, as a model builder and then there had been people who preceded you uh, who come from Mendo you mentioned your father Jack yeah. Hay uh, Bill Stoneham and Willem Vantillo also worked for ILM I know Wim very well I haven't, yeah. haven't seen him for a few years he was a regular in the creature shop prior to, to me being there and he worked for CWI and some of the other effects companies down there I've run into him in Harvest a couple of times when my dad lived in Sausalito in the late 80s Wim lived next door there's a group of people there's some from that island model shop, that sort of 80s, 90s island model shop, there are a couple people that still live in that same apartment complex. Oh, we interviewed Bill Stoneham, by the way, cool. for, for this show as well. So. Yeah, and I think uh, uh-huh. Paul Krause was there for a little mm-hmm. while. So all these people who had been involved, and you were there now, and suddenly you're rising through the ranks, but you did, worked on Mars Attacks, Men yeah. in Black, Starship Troopers. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about those. I, I'm fascinated by all those movies, and you know, that, that opening of Mars Attacks, when the, all, all the, the Martian stuff is heading for Earth with that music that's, uh, is it Danny Elfman, <laughs> yeah, Danny right? Elfman for sure. Anyway, great stuff. Talk, talk to us a little bit about working on those movies. So, super fun, mid to late 90s classics, right? And and I feel so lucky to have had a little piece of that. We were doing our little thing, which was basically building spaceships. At that point, digital was such that it was sometimes still cheaper and better to build miniature sets that you'd then composite the digital characters into. Or in the instance of all of the Star Wars prequels, a tremendous amount of the environments were miniatures. So oftentimes a whole scene would take place and George would just shoot everybody against green screen. We'd build the room that they're in and then we'd photograph that to match the action of the characters. Just observing that was really wonderful. When we were making Starship Troopers, I remember all of us, we just had so much fun doing it. I I know there was something light about it. Yeah. And when the movie came out, we all just loved it because it was so different and Uh, fun. It is a different movie (laughs) and I loved it and uh, Mars Attacks, Starship Troopers, they were all completely different for me. Is there any particular models you're like, like that was some of my favorite, of that era? Yeah, Starship Troopers, one of the first really fun things that I that I ever got to help lead and create was this this ring that they, they fly through. That was super fun. I have great memories of Men in Black because at that time I was still just helping out. I was a model maker, but I wasn't stepped into a leadership role of any sort. At some point we had to do additional photography and it ended up coming to the ILM stages to do that additional photography with Will Smith. We built these little sets that we had to 
doesn't work in and you know when he's kicking the bugs right. all the, yeah, the, yeah, the cockroaches yeah. come out that was my that, so that was I think my first experience like being on a proper Hollywood set instead of like what we did with miniatures was motion control photography mostly yeah. and motion control photography you build a set or a miniature or whatever it might be or a spaceship this is how Star Wars the mm -hmm. original Star Wars works with the ships flying by mm -hmm. and what's happening is for the most part the ship isn't flying by the camera's flying by and the camera movement can be repeated so this this was computer technology that was developed in the 70s by John Dykstra and a number of other people that was really, really groundbreaking because what that meant is that you could photograph this ship one time, make it look like it was flying past the camera at speed. You photograph it once for ambient light, photograph it again for little pin lights on it, turn off all the lights and now you've got exposure for the, the lights on it. You do another pass for jets coming out the back and then, so that's one ship, and then you do that again for all the other ships in the shot, right? Wow. So the camera's moving the same, so you might end up, this, the compositing that they did at the time was optical as well. So they were literally taking film, stacking it on top of one another yeah. to do all these different passes, and then all these different ships. It was a, it's a really remarkable process, especially yeah. because the matting technology, in other words, like rotoscoping and digital matting that we do nowadays, that compositing is just so much more advanced. The, the work that they did was remarkable. Thank you for that aside. And, and, and I will say that that work, yeah. when, you're, when, you're, when you're doing what we call stage support for a motion control shot, that essentially meant you build a set, and then if you built it, you have to go sit and watch it while it's on set in case something falls off, in case the camera hits it, because as you're programming the camera path through this, in the instance of that, that Starship Troopers set, basically a tunnel. So as the cameras flying through as if you're the POV of the, sh of the ship flying in there, you're going to have to lift a lid as the ship is flying so that the arm of the motion control camera can make it through this tunnel. That now, Aaron's giving us a blow-by-blow -blow and he's also moving his <laughs> Gesticulating wildly. Gesticulating <laughs> madly, right. That stage support meant sitting there on set in the dark. Mm -hmm. This was pre-cell phones, so you didn't have anything to do but just basically watch and make sure the camera didn't hit anything. So you sit on a pile of sandbags and hope you don't fall asleep. <laughs> the thing on Men in Black that I really loved and that I, that I have great memory for because it was my first experience being on a Hollywood set was we had to do the shot in Men in Black where Will Smith is in the vehicle when they go in the tunnel. They're in their car. It transforms and it goes upside down flying oh, yeah. through this tunnel. Tommy Lee Jones couldn't be there so Will Smith was there doing his part. We had a perfect replica of the rubber head, a big silicone head of Tommy Lee Jones in a, <laughs> in a suit and because I was the skinny little kid, uh, my job was to go in the car with Will Smith while he was doing his thing and puppeteer Tommy Lee Jones's head. That's oh, great! It. So that that yeah. is my first exposure to Hollywood, and I was like, okay, I, I think I like this. This is, <laughs> this is fun. <laughs> yeah. I'm a Tommy Lee Jones fan. Over time, I think he's, he's done some great stuff. Yeah. 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 Uh, the remake of The Fugitive, I mean, he was driven yeah. in that role. So. Yeah. so you're doing all of this, and you're also doing 3D set design. I see that was in some of the Matrix movies. Yeah, so in that transition from the practical models to digitals, so we have this laser cutter, which required AutoCAD, which is a 2D design program. That's mm -hmm. where I sort of got my mm -hmm. in. And then we had this CNC mill, which is a machine that is able to cut parts in 3D. And so it was like, ooh, we have to learn a tool for that. So we all were looking for a design tool that would allow you to build things in 3D. It was called the Laser Room. There was a group of us that were a cohort together that were about the same age who all sort of trained ourselves on these programs. We started, Maya was a great 3D design tool, but not something that you could use to build stuff practically. So we used a tool called Rhino. This is in year 2000 maybe. And the group of people that were in there, Adam Savage and 
Grant Imahara and Tori Bellucci and Fawn Davis, who are all went on to Mythbusters and all the other things that, that have happened over the years. We, we all sort of learned this and went off in our different directions from that little laser room, I call it. So I started learning this tool and started building these first, I won't even call them sets, they would say miniatures. The first thing I ever did in 3D was a skyscraper for the movie AI, the uh -huh. Steven Spielberg yes. movie. It was meant to be basically the Seagram's Tower in New York City collapsed and then built this in 3D and went, wow, this is really cool. And then we cut it out of plastic. And then the next project I did was the second Star Wars prequel where I actually built an entire set, a bunch of buildings in 3D. And then the process was essentially my boss at ILM uh, at the time, Brian Gernand said, George wants this one set to feel like a little bit art deco. There's no artwork for it yet. They've given us a previs, but it's just boxes. Previs is like really early computer graphics to show what the camera might see. Okay. But it's just boxes at this point. So I go, all right. Uh, I don't really know what that means, but I'm gonna. I got a, went to the library at ILM, got a book on Art Deco, and sort of studied, studied, and then just drew a number of buildings in, build them in 3D, laid them all out. Everybody approved that stuff. Then we took those and we built them practically as a set that we would photograph in this instance, motion control again, still. It was so big, these, these buildings were so big that we made a large turntable that we'd stick outside, giant platform sort of 50 feet wide by 50 by 50, let's say, and build these miniatures and basically angle them so that you could rotate it to the sun, so you could mm -hmm. have consistent oh, yeah. sunlight, uh -huh, uh -huh. And, but shoot it in sunlight basically to make it look like exterior. So that was a huge step for me, was getting to sort of design these buildings that way. And, and also a learning point, I'll never forget forget the day we wheeled all this stuff out to the stage, set it all up, everything's looking good. George Lucas had come by and seen us building these things the whole time, no problem. But this day, the day we're supposed to start shooting, he's there with the documentary film crew out the back behind the scenes and he comes out and he's like, great, great, great. But okay, so I want this building to be blue, this one to be yellow, this one to be red. Let's change, you know, this is, let's not go with the Star Wars gray drab colors. Let's change it up. Okay, bring it all back in, totally repaint it. That's when I realized How like, long did it take <laughs> Sorry, that's when you realized, go ahead. No, that's when I realized like there's a there's this process here and somebody can always say do it again and that's just I have learned over the years that whatever it is that I'm creating whether it's something at home or whether it's a giant set you could spend months building and designing and building something and then it can be gone from the movie yeah. or somebody could hate it and they cut it whatever it might be don't take it personally you know, I put heart and soul into something and then it belongs to somebody else it belongs to the world like let's make it the best it can be don't take it personally if somebody has some criticism of your work and you know they always say number one you always hear in, in Oscar speeches but also that film is a collaborative thing. Hundred million you, percent. You you can write you can write that script yeah. and then it becomes something completely different in a director's hands, but with all the art directors, etc., working under that person, it becomes something completely different. Correct, and it's yeah. owned by hundreds of people at that point. That's right. And you know, so all of that is going on and you know it's kind of like also individualistic. You have to change it. George didn't like the colors, he wants the colors different. Yeah. Gotta go back to work. How long did that particular painting job. Do you remember how that long was that probably took? two weeks. Also. Oh yeah. So you know we had a shoot date. It changed. You mm -hmm. know you pivot. Yeah. It, these things these things move. And so again, that's, those were great early lessons for me to see that process. The the process there at that time I think was very idiosyncratic compared to the rest of the way Hollywood worked because we were sort of this insular group of creative people who they were less defined boundaries between roles I think mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of crossover and the opportunity to try different things and read a lot of really creative 
amazing people there at ILM in, the, in those years. I can't help but wonder, as, as you're talking, how much influence the the movie business has on aspects of tech, like 3, 3D model making must be influential for, they're doing stuff now where they're even building organs yeah. for body organs. 3D printing. Yes. Um, that's one of the magic things about sci-fi. It's, it's a funny thing. Sci-fi has this amazing ability to think of the future and then some things happen, like Star Trek communicators, we all carry right. one around in our pockets. Yes. Where are the flying cars, as people say? You know, <laughs> like, uh, say what we will about Mr. Musk, who has sort of gone off the deep end, but the fact that 10 years ago, I guess it was, uh, he said, why are the greatest minds on earth designing games and apps for people's phones? We need to be doing something bigger, and we need to figure out electric cars so that we're not destroying the world, and we need to figure out... So, so yes. that's, that's a little aside. Science fiction and science reality, they never quite see eye to eye. They go in places that we never would have expected, like artificial intelligence, at least what we're calling artificial intelligence right now, these design tools and writing tools that are coming to the fore at the moment. It's the last place we thought AI was going to be. In every movie we ever saw, whether it was Data in Star Trek or whether it was Robbie the Robot back in... You thought of an artificial intelligence or a robotic being as a functioning person thing that would do what you wanted it to do and it didn't take your job necessarily. <laughs> now, with the advent of technologies like Midjourney and uh, Stable Diffusion and chat GPT on the, there are these technologies that are basically harvesting every image that's ever been made. And I can go and type in and say, I'd like to see a picture of a man giving an interview with the ocean behind him on a sofa. With the right words, I can get something that looks something like this. It's, yeah. it's absolutely crazy and it's growing exponentially. Uh, so anyway, that's a technology that we never would have anticipated. And here we are. Another aside, just to add, it's an add-on. My wife is a psychotherapist uh -huh. and she's now playing with the AI stuff on the phone and showing me stuff. Yeah. And she goes, listen to this. Give me a treatment plan for such and such aspect of mental illness. Yeah. And the AI comes up with a credible treatment plan. Yes. At baseline, she could start with that and she could tweak it and then use it. Yeah. But it's fascinating. And she showed me and it was like, wow. She goes, this is actually something you would have a professor tell you. A hundred percent. People that I work with, my dear friends and colleagues who are artists who've spent their lives honing a craft and a skill to be able to create. I can, I can go to this person and say, here's the research. Here's my idea. Make me an image that looks like this. And they mm. create that. And suddenly their entire livelihood and every Everything that they've created is now being threatened by a 15-year-old kid in his bedroom with a cell phone who can describe a scene. There's a lot of stuff online right now on the various social media that, that show mashups of different movies and directors from different eras. That's the simplest way that, that this technology is being used. But the way it's going to be used very soon is remarkable. I can foresee a future where you could say, I'd like to see a 90-minute movie about a guy with two left feet who climbs trees for a living and falls madly in love with a pink dragon. Give you enough processing time and power, this technology is going to be able to create that. Oh, and I'd like to have a Sean Connery at age 35 as the lead and Marilyn Monroe mixed with Bryce Dallas Howard. Boom. You got it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's that's yeah. what's what's coming. 
in yeah. a very strange way. This technology this year is growing exponentially and learning quickly. There's a lot of lawsuits right now trying to stop it, but I'm afraid that we opened a Pandora's box by putting all of the imagery that we've done, trillions of images, out into the world. Anybody can harvest those images and basically learn from them, and that's what this technology is doing, is learning what people look like, what, you know, they still don't know what, what our hands look like, honestly. They get it wrong almost all the time. It's getting better every day, and the chat GPT, the one your wife was using, is equally remarkable. I mean, people, yeah. people are using it as a therapy tool. People are using it as a writing tool. I use it as a writing tool just very recently. Let's say I'm creating a movie you know, that I want to apply characters and themes from a book that exists, an existing property, mm -hmm. but I don't want to rip it off exactly. I can say, are you familiar with this work? Yeah, no problem. It immediately gives you an outline of the work. And then you say, I've got this character that does this and this, who has a thematic relationship with this person, and it's an analog for this character in this book. Can you give me an example from the original book where this character might speak to this idea and boom it gives you a list of page numbers so rather than going through a 1000 page book as a research tool you can now ask this chatbot to go find you the relevant sentences from that book wow well you know i think you're giving me some leads on making my uh, snap sessions articles better and being able to research them faster too it is, is basically whatever input that the chatbot has that's what it can put out so if it doesn't have no access to that knowledge, then it won't be able to give you accurate information. But if it has the data as a, as a place to start, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, well, this is great. I, I love these aside. I mean, in, in a way, I consider this now a Snap Sessions exclusive, although it won't be. <laughs> but you know, they're giving us information. And I got curious about a couple of the movies as well as a little bit about the different jobs that you've done over time, because we were talking about being a model maker, a chief model maker. Yeah. A Terminator 3 you worked on as a chief model maker. Got any things you can tell us about Terminator 3 because that was a great movie. So in that instance, so again, that's that transition where I was transitioning from a model builder to a set designer. Those films at the same time were like the Matrix sequels, Matrix okay. 2 and 3, and Terminator 3 were all simultaneous. And so that was that was this transition where I was drawing things in 3D, building them out, and then helping to fabricate them. So in the instance of Terminator 3, I had a team and we were building a set at ILM that I came back to ILM after having left to go to those other movies. I could see this new way of working. This became the impetus. I moved to LA very shortly after. And my observation was that in the design process for a film, you'd have a, a sketch, an idea, and you'd have a storyboard, and you have the director's vision, and you have to take all these ideas and then synthesize them into first concept art, and then a blueprint. And then that blueprint had to be made into construction drawings. It takes all these steps to get there. And yeah. I thought, well, if you design it in 3D and you do it right, then that's, that's it. You know what the thing's gonna look like and you send it out, you don't need the same storyboard information. You basically can do it all digitally. And I was thrilled by this idea because it was so sort of revolutionary in 2001. Moved to LA in 2002 with just this excited vision, like I can find my way in down here. I didn't know a single soul in LA at the time yeah, yeah. and had no in. I didn't know how to get into the art department at the time. I only knew visual effects. So I went and applied it some visual effects houses down there, and ended up working on a few films as a chief model maker, essentially, or a lead. That job was, here's the here's the project, design it, figure out how to make it, run a crew, build it. That led me down a path. I took that job and learned from it. The first production designer that I, have, I had ever worked with directly was on one of those films that I did in Los Angeles, still in visual effects, that was The, the Fountain. I worked with a designer called James Chinland, who's an amazing production designer and good friend, who saw what I was doing there in visual effects in miniatures and he was the first person who ever said you want to come and art direct for me and uh -huh. I was like 
what, what does an art director do? Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, you know, like that, that opened my eyes to that possibility mm -hmm. of what that could be. Somewhere around that same time, I can't even remember anymore, I got a call from the art director that I had been working with in the Bay Area on the Matrix movies, who was now down in Los Angeles, and said, we're making this Superman movie uh, that never happened. It was a movie that never happened, but I came in with another person who was just like me, who was basically 3D designer, who was trying to find their way into the world, and we shared a room, and we learned so much from each other and that movie was never made so I spent like six months got into the union as a 3d designer started to see how that world worked who does what there's a design there's a production designer there's an art director okay I get that and there's we are set designers we figure this out but I was also because I was coming from the outside I didn't know what the boundaries of my job were and I was always pushing it I was like okay I can do this concept piece and now I can animate it I'll run a camera through it and just show them what that looks like so you're experimenting the whole time. Totally. Learning on the job every day. Always I, trying to push myself to do something that I didn't know how to do. Yeah. Um, I think that's wonderful. Basically, you're educating yourself through your entire career. Correct. Yeah. And you know, you, when you move from one job to the other, when you move from chief model maker to art design, you are effectively making sort of a quantum leap in a innovation. It's, it's a strange, so I'm, I'm in a lane it, while I was doing miniatures where the company I was working at had said like, do you want to be a visual effects supervisor? We can put you into that path. And at that same time, I was also directing music videos on the mm -hmm. side. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, and I was, so I was doing that as a parallel path. And then this other opportunity came along and I went, boop, sideways, jumped. It, as you say, a quantum leap. It, I leapt from one lane to another. It was a strange transition, but it felt totally natural to me. It felt like where I needed to be at the time. It was all very new, but it was exciting. Another thing about it is, is you mentioned the guy who says, hey, do you want to do some art design with me? When I talked to Sax Eno, he talked about one time he really wanted to be being an editor uh -huh. and he had gone to Chapman University and he was down there and he was doing various projects and at one point he asked a guy he goes do you mind if I just sit in the back and watch you work and the guy said yes go right ahead Sachs watched him work all summer and by the end of the summer they had a good rapport and he started letting Sachs do stuff Great. and by that Sachs kind of absorbed it like a sponge he made kind of a quantum leap and the guy introduced him to people and you can't count on this kind of stuff and you never know but when it happens happens and you're there and you're able to grab it. It's a wonderful thing. I think that's right and it's being in the right place. When I'm talking to younger people and, and offering advice or mentoring people on my own team, it's always like just be excited by what you're doing. Don't be apathetic. Learn everything you can and somebody will see that and they'll take you under their wing and there you go. You'll find the next thing. One thing always leads to another. Whatever it might be, every choice is a, is a choice that leads to some other place and, and I think back. I hit inflection points all the time. You meet somebody and then you end up working with them for years. I have met people and then worked with them again in other countries on other continents over the years. I think that's really a remarkable thing because there's a community of artists and craftspeople in this world, this filmmaking world, that sort of, we're sort of like a traveling circus. We have to create a new team in a new country or a new state or whatever it might be, a new city, all the time. So it requires a certain type of person who's capable and adept or flexible. They can adapt to these changes as they occur. And that's why I always, like I started with this conversation and said, my job is somewhere between classical composition and jazz improvisation. It sometimes veers to one side or the other, but it's always a combination of intention and improvisation.
You know, I like that a lot. And I also like, there's a couple of things when you mentioned when you're there, you might as well have a good time. Yes, 100%. And, you know, <laughs> and I feel that a lot of times. I, I try to coach the kids in improv. As long as you're here, give 100%. Yeah. Show up all the time. I'm only here for seven weeks. We do this twice twice a week for yeah. seven weeks. Show up, give 100%, and then it'll be over. It'll be like Cinderella. It'll all turn back into a pumpkin and mice. Yeah. So <laughs> be here, give 100%. One of my favorite expressions from England is in for a penny, in for a pound. I think that's great. You know, you show up, you give 100%, have a good time, boop, then it, you know, it dissolves later. You're on to something else. Anyway, I think those are great insights. I wanted to check with you about the day after tomorrow. This is like a scary piece of what they call in cli-fi, you know, climate <laughs> fiction these days. And I, I wonder, that was, I think it's a pretty interesting movie. It was way back, like 2004 or something yeah. like that. Any insights you have working with Roland Emmerich? Yeah, so well, I mean, he, we know he makes big disaster picks and that's, yeah. he's he's good at those yeah. and, and that <laughs> yeah. one it's funny that one obviously exaggerated a phenomenon but it's a phenomenon that's real in that in that yeah. instance like there is a possibility where the excess fresh water coming from Greenland as it melts could shut down the conveyor belt of hot water that leaves from the Gulf and it wouldn't do what it did in the movie obviously but let's just put it this way that even though the world is warming overall it doesn't mean that the climate is predictable in any yeah, way that's the, I think that's, that's the one of the main points yeah. that's the point yeah. of that movie yeah. I think that, that it was, you shut down that warm water that's heading across the Atlantic and what happens to Northern Europe? It gets colder. So what does that mean for the future? I think that there's many questions. I find that kind of stuff so fascinating. The most effective sci-fi to me is the stuff that makes you ask questions, especially if they're near term and ask questions that feel possible. I didn't work on the movie, but Children of Men I love because of it's really well done, but also just that idea that what happens if people stop giving birth? It's a thing that could happen. It's the Zika virus. Oh, gee, if people can't have babies anymore. I think those sort of questions that good sci-fi authors and directors, they help us all because they make us ask questions in ways yeah. that we didn't expect. But for me personally on that project, that was still again that transition point from practical to digital. I was working for a company in Los Angeles called New Deal Studios and ironically, I spent a bunch of time creating a set that was cut from the movie. But it was but it was really transitional for me in that at the end of the movie there's like this scene where you see various parts of the world, right? And there's a moment where you're meant to see Paris and London and blah 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 so they wanted to see the Eiffel Tower covered in ice I had five weeks to build an Eiffel Tower and cover it in ice and build a set for it. I first built it in 3D, then designed a camera move for that to sort of show how that would work on the ground plane with a digital background, blue screen behind it, and then took that digital model and laser cut all the pieces of the Eiffel Tower. Again, going back to that previous thing where I could break down a 3D structure like that into 2D elements that I could create simply. And so within two weeks, I had an 11 foot Eiffel Tower fabricated, painted in as the Eiffel Tower. Then we had to destroy it by covering it in ice and build Paris, a piece of Paris, but that, that's the easy part. You know, build <laughs> it was those kind of challenges that were so fun. Build an Eiffel Tower in two weeks. Okay. So what I learned from that was that previous camera move that I made, we used that to, to drive the motion control camera. That was the first time I'd ever combined those two skills and yeah. not just created the concept, the model, the previs, and then the camera move itself. So that was like a really, I could, I'm like, okay, I see the whole picture now. I'm touching all of these different parts. And then it was cut from the movie and classic. <laughs> Classic, yeah. Now, I also wanted to ask you about a curious case of Benjamin Button, because I think it's about 2008, and by now you're you're an assistant art director, yes, I think. Yes, and that was, again, another transition. I had spent five years working as a set designer, which essentially set designer takes the vision of the designer, the director, or the art directors, and creates documents so that construction 
can build them or visual effects can build them, whatever it might be. It's the nitty gritty of it, right? Mm -hmm. And art direction is the process of managing that. I had taken that five years after being on set as a younger person in visual effects, I had been on set more, right? Because I was working in visual effects and for five years I was basically just behind a computer drawing things. The end, the lesson that I want to say to everybody is that I'm, I'm a complete hack in that I've never gone to school for anything I've ever done professionally. So I never studied drafting, I never studied computer design, I never studied 3D design in school, never studied cameras. All this stuff that I've done since, I've tried to learn on the job. So this was a, another example. The beginning of that project, that designer that I mentioned earlier, when I just started Benjamin Button, which was a beautiful story and I loved and was working with a group of people that I really loved, but that designer, James Chinlin, had come to me and said, do you want to art direct for me at this time? Yeah. And I was working as a set designer. And I said, I'd love to. I don't really know what that job is yet. Let me kind of figure that out. And then so I went to the people that I was working with at the time and said, I'd like to be an assistant art director. Will you do that for me? And they said, yes. The first thing I had to do was we had to find a boat for the movie. I don't know if you've seen the movie. Yeah, but I have. Like the, yes. This boat plays a big, a big role. So I had to find a boat and then I had to basically survey the boat and design the boat so we could build it. We had to replicate it. I went down there and I built the boat digitally from bow to stern, tip to tail, every nut and bolt, photographed it, and built a 3D model and then gave it to other um, set designers. We started doing all the construction drawings for it. Meanwhile, as another aside, two weeks after being in New Orleans, I am walking with another art director through the quarter, trying to find a restaurant for dinner that she knew about. She had been to New Orleans before, I had never been there. Walk in a restaurant, sit down, start having a bite to eat, and I get a tap on a shoulder. This woman says, excuse me, sorry, you look like you might be the right age. Do you remember what Mork and Mindy's son's name was? Because it was a character who was aging backwards, and my friend over there is aging backwards. So I'm like, what? <laughs> Intrigued, right? Yeah, because yeah, nobody yeah. knows where they're working on Benjamin Button. And right. This is not a story anybody knows about. And that some random person who turns out to be my wife's best friend, why would she do that? So I'm intrigued. I was like, this is 2006. So there's no smartphones at this point. So I called a friend who I knew was sitting in front of the computer and said, can you look this up for me? His name was Mirth. So I find this out and I go back and go over to the table, introduce myself and tell them the name. And this lovely young woman who has been married. How long have we been married, dear? 13 years? <laughs> so that moment I met my wife because she was an old soul aging backwards was what they said. Oh. And magic can happen in the most remarkable places and times when you least expect it. That's kind of a magical story. It I is. I mean, it, it is. is. It's kind yeah. of like, I love stuff like that. So we go from New Orleans where we're doing all this work designing the stuff and working on sets there. And then we go back to Los Angeles to build stage work. And part of the stage work was this whole time I've been trying to figure out how to design and build an 80-foot tugboat on set. In the movie, it rams a submarine, so it needs right. to go from flat to about an angle of 18 degrees within two seconds. Boom! Oh, so man. it has to have hydraulics engineered underneath it, so the whole ship has to also be built on this huge steel structure. So I've got to work with a special effects designer who's building big steel structures and giant pistons, work with a construction team, and work with, obviously, the paint department and all these other different departments as a first-time assistant art director. The production designer is this wonderful Academy Award-winning designer named Don Burt, and he let me do it. Nobody interfered. He let me run that and figure out how to do it on my own. And it was such a remarkable experience and it opened my eyes and to the point where like David Fincher's coming around to set to get a tour and Don would put his hoodie up and disappear into the background and just let me lead that conversation. At this point, I'm, I guess, 32 being at that level where I'm able to have that opportunity to speak directly with David Fincher and show him around our set and, and let him explain his vision and how it's going to work. It was such an opportunity and such a gift. And again, a quantum leap for me to 
see. Yeah. I love this. I like being on set. I like mm -hmm. working with people. I don't want to sit in front of my computer all the time. I like doing that. Yeah. But this is back to what I love doing is, yeah. is collaborating with people and getting dirty. That's been my path since that yeah. point. And also, once again, somebody throwing a block for you yeah. and then allowing you to move into a role. I'm 70 now. And one of the key lessons that I have learned in the last years is knowing when to get out of the way mm -hmm. so that somebody younger than you has an opportunity. And yeah. I think that this is a good thing in life. When I notice somebody who's even older than me blocking young people from getting somewhere, <laughs> it enrages me, I must yeah. say. Don't you realize these people are going to be running the show someday? Yeah. We need to make it better for them. Yeah. And when I get mad at my own generation for being in the way environmentally or whatever it happens to be, a lot of it has to do with that. I've been the recipient of so many gifts like that where somebody has, even if it's just words of encouragement, again, maybe the next year year I was working on the first Star Wars movie with J.J. Abrams. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, um, Working as an assistant art director, looking for that next step, like what is the next step for me. A bunch of people, different people were working on designing the Enterprise, for instance. Right, right? yeah. Know, it's yeah. a big collaborative effort, so many different things to do. Inevitably, the set would come back to a big 3D model on my computer so that we could all see every piece come together. The designer would come in, he hated digital tools and he would get so frustrated because he couldn't draw on my screen. The supervising art director at the time could see what I could do and I will never forget after the frustration of the designer, who's a, another brilliant, talented production designer, but didn't like the digital tools at the time, JJ came in and he said, can I hop in? The, the supervising art director, another dear friend, introduces me and is like, this is Aaron, he's going to be running things in no time. That kind of gift, to say that in front of somebody like that was just so incredible encouraging, right? So JJ, being who he is, walks in and goes, so I hold uh, control and left click to orbit, right? Yeah, you got it. Hop on in. Like so digitally versed and yeah. so facile. He just comes in and navigates his way in this 3D set. I was super impressed by that. He's just a super smart guy. And as you say, a little nudge and yeah. where somebody gets out of the way and says, I'm not going to do that. You do this. And I've tried to pay that forward as I've come into leadership positions. We, we all rise together. You're trying to find those people who are ready to take the next step because they're hungry. And I know what it's like to be hungry for that next thing because we always are. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and of course, there is a huge amount of talented people following you, too. Yeah. I'm always fascinated by the next young improviser who shows up on the high school team. Yeah. Look, I got six good freshmen this year, and wow. they're all into yeah. it. I love <laughs> that. So you were designer on Blade Runner 2049, which is quite a beautiful film. And of course, Blade Runner, the original, was an iconic sci-fi yeah. film. At the time... 1982. 1982. Wow. It was L.A. in the year 2019. Yes. So what are some of the challenges of working on Blade Runner 2049? So that's, a, again, an incredible gift, that opportunity. So I had been supervising art director on another film the year before, Terminator Genesis. Again, the production designer on that film was a dear friend, and he allowed me to run with so much on that, like let me design a lot. And it gave me my first taste of that process. The producer that we were working with on that saw that and knew that even though I was an art director, I was capable of something else and called me and said, okay, I've got this next project. Would you come on as a consultant? Can't say what it's going to lead to yet, but would you come on and consult? And I said, yes. It's Blade Runner, by the way. And I was like, oh, yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it's yeah. the most iconic, beautifully designed and executed film. And so much 
love for that property. So Denis Villeneuve, the director, is just such a gifted filmmaker and yeah. wonderful human being. I met him and thought I would love to do this. He brought me on initially to try to budget the film. Let's figure out, do some rough designs, early days designs. So I brought a team of five people together, four illustrators and a researcher and myself. We were just in a little office in Los Angeles. We all loved this property so much and we cared so deeply about it. Each of those illustrators, concept artists, designers in and of themselves had brilliant ideas. They're all, again, award-winning, top-tier, amazing people. Every idea that we had went through. I've never been on a show, and I probably never will be on again, where 90% of the work that we created ended up on screen in some form or other. It was just a really remarkable, unique scenario. We called it the nest because it was like this safe place where we could all just create. Denis, at the time, was working on The Arrival. Oh, yeah. He was what? shooting it. Great, at another great Another great sci-fi, yeah. So we would only talk on the weekends. I'd send him all the work that we'd done that week, Friday night. He would look at it on Saturday, and then we would have a video call the next day and talk about different ideas. He only came out in person a few times. Also had the opportunity to have Hampton Fancher, who was the original producer and writer of the first Blade Runner, come through, and Ridley Scott come through and see everything, and then Harrison Ford come through. And at this point, we've got what we call the war room, which is the whole films are laid out on big walls. That's the way we like to do it. So that you can see the concept from the beginning to end. Characters, yeah. set pieces, vehicles, weapons, all that sort of stuff in their early phases. And you can get a notion going from a small screen to a big wall. Yes. And you yeah. can get, it might help you. Yeah, so rather than printing on 8.5 by 11, our 11 by 17, which we would typically do for most presentations, we tried to print really big and just make everything really impressive. When Hampton Fancher walked in and like saw everything, ended the presentation, dead silent, the producers were standing there and like, what's going to happen? And he came up to me and gave me a big hug and he said, thank you. This is amazing. And I was like, oh! <laughs> in the arc of a story, right? Here's mm -hmm. the arc of the story where that is this false victory. It was a victory, but what comes next is they decide that they need three months to finish the script. We had been virtually scouting and preparing to go to different countries and everything, and they still hadn't guaranteed me the job. The studio said, we really hope that you're the designer. That's the way they put it. They kept saying, you're the designer, you're our guy. And then we go away for three months, we go back to New Orleans, spend some time remodeling our house because it's guaranteed it's this big movie coming up and it's gonna be my first job as a production designer on a big feature. Fucking Blade Runner, like who could ask yeah, for anything yeah, better? Yeah. Come back from that, walk into the studio head's office, they call me in and they say, look, amazing work, everybody loves it. This movie's getting made now because of this work that you made, but it's not gonna work out. We've got another movie for you, but we need you to do this other movie. We're gonna get somebody else to finish this one. You can't imagine the gut, gut punch. punch. Uh, yeah. uh, but again, every gift has a top and a bottom. And that process, I wouldn't give up for the world. Being able to conceptualize a movie of that caliber, it was literally just a treatment form. There wasn't a finished draft of a script. Let's figure out what this is gonna work with. And things that we came up with ended up in the script because it sort of works back and forth. Sometimes mm -hmm. you have a finished script, sometimes the visuals help guide the script. It was such a gift and a learning experience for me. And the other artists that were in that team with me still to this day are like, that was the best experience. But in the end, I think they wanted somebody with a shiny gold statue on their wall. The designer who ended up finishing that movie is incredibly talented and obviously won an Academy Award for his work. What I got in the end was a special thanks right next to Sid Mead at the end of the movie. So I'll yeah. take it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a year or two later, so you, you worked on Bohemian Rhapsody yeah. as a production designer. Yeah. And of course, that wins a bunch of awards. Yeah. 
And for me, I'm a Queen fan. It's a great movie. It was really hard to recreate that band, and you guys did a great job. Yeah. Tell us about what is involved in the production design of that movie. I'm going to go back and sort of describe Please. what a production designer does. On a movie, you have a writer, you have a director, you have producers. There's a movie that's going to be made, generally. The director will bring in a designer to figure out what the world is going to look like. I'm responsible for anything on screen that's not an actor. The sets, the dressing, every swatch of paint, every doorknob. It's my job to run these construction, set decoration, props, paint, plaster, metal shop, visual effects, wardrobe even to a degree because it has to match the design of the film. I first came to that project because I had a relationship from another project with Brian Singer, the first director of that movie. He had called me because of that Blade Runner experience. I then went on and spent six months designing another movie for that same studio that didn't get made. So I'd spent six months on Blade Runner that didn't get made, or didn't get made with me anyway. Another movie that didn't get made for six months. And then Brian Singer called me to do 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I spent another six months designing that movie. It didn't get made. So I'd spent a year and a half just designing movies that didn't get made. You could look at that at like like, oh, bummer. But for me, it was like, all right, I'm honing my chops. Now I know how to do, I can conceptualize yeah. anything. Um, and it's part of show business, I'm yeah. saying here as a reminder for those <laughs> listening. Yeah, not everything gets made. A lot of mm-hmm. things never happen, and you can spend years on a project and never have it happen. That's why I think it's really important as an artist and a creative person who I do what I do because I love what I do, not because I need anything out of it. I do like to get paid for it, obviously. You put everything, heart and soul, and then let it go. It's very zen. You have to give it your all and then, like children, you let them go, let them grow up. So I came on to do 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. That didn't happen, but then he said, this script just came up, Freddie Mercury, we'll go to London, then we'll go straight to the Mediterranean and make 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. All right, sounds good, let's do it. (laughs) He said, you go over there, get it all figured out. I'll be there in a few months. And he just said, make it real. Make it, that's all I can care about. Make it as real as you possibly can. So went over to London, never been there before at that point. Built a team around some really key people. That's again the process that I have to do is go to a new country or a new place, whatever it might be, and find key elements of the team who will then find all the rest. Right. And in Britain there's a lot of good there's people. There's amazing, yeah. amazing mm-hmm. people yeah. over there. I had my challenges, as we all do, in working in a situation like that. But for the most part, we were just left to figure it all out. Brian notoriously fell off of that project eventually and was replaced. He was very hands-off. Could be very difficult, but it was also, again, a huge opportunity because it meant that so much of the look and flavor and feel of that movie came down to my team and the producer, the cinematographer. I haven't mentioned the cinematographer, which is a huge part of my job. All these different elements come together. The person that's photographing, I could, with this huge team of people, build the most amazing set in the world, but if it's not lit well and it's not photographed well, then it's a pile of doo-doo and cares. And if there's not a great story to tell there, then, you know, if you don't have good actors, each one of these little elements make this whole, which is why it's such an amazing collaborative experience. But so assistant director and the director of photography and myself would go around to these locations and figure out how we were going to shoot the the movie. That opportunity doesn't come along there very often. As much as it was difficult having Brian not be there that much, I felt like that pushed everybody in an interesting way. Even Rami Malek, who played Freddie Mercury, who was absolutely amazing. When those guys first showed up, we had no idea how it was going to work. But even, again, those opportunities. So, for instance, Willem Lee, who ended up playing uh, Brian May. Right, Brian May, the guitarist. Yes, there was a table read, and they hired just a bunch of actors 
who were not in the movie, and Rami, who was there. Everybody else was just like from London, Game of Thrones actors who were just reading parts for us. And uh, Gwilym, he was amazing. Like he nailed every nuance of Brian May, even not in character. And I went to the casting director and I was like, this guy, you gotta go get that guy. He's amazing. Normally I would never have that opportunity to be sitting in a table read. Opportunities come from strange, what might seem as, as a difficulty, um, to the point that like, we built all these amazing, for me, really fun, amazing sets. My goal is to make the actors feel like they are their character, like they belong there, like they don't have to imagine what it's like to be that character. They can just be that character in the place. And that can be difficult when you have a big digital environment, which we had to do for the Live Aid big concert scenes. Sure. We don't have 100,000 people in front of us. I was um, wondering about that when I watched. <laughs> I said, because I watched, I was living in Britain when Live Aid went on, yeah. and I was watching it on television. And I'm thinking Everybody to myself, how did they do this? Yeah. So the stadium that that was filmed in had been torn down, and I couldn't find any of the original blueprints of that version of the stadium. There were several different versions mm -hmm. of Wembley that, that had been built. We went from various designs, but we, we sort of knew we needed to encompass a story that went from backstage to the stage. I first created a digital model, and then we quickly created a little miniature. Basically, we build mm -hmm. oftentimes art department models, which are made from foam core and cardboard and paper, mm -hmm. but it allows the, the director of photography, the DP, to see how the action will take place. The walls come apart, so you can show them how mm -hmm. the camera will work and get everybody to buy off on that, tell them how much money it's going to cost. It costs a lot of money. That set was a massive 70,000 square foot set built on an airfield north of London because there was no stage big enough to keep it dry and we needed all that space in front. So it's an old abandoned airfield that we built a giant tent over the top of. So mm -hmm. all these different levels of things that have to happen you have to design it, then you have to build a platform that's 15 feet in the air with all these different levels because that's how high the stage was at Wembley. So we needed to make sure that that, that relationship to the crowd was correct. And then all the peeling paint and the texture on the wall and the graphics and the people in their costumes and all of that had to work. It had to feel like they were actually there. Even down to at Live Aid, in order to get the bands off quickly, they built a revolving stage. So there was a, oh, a circle yeah. in the stage and a triangular backing you had actually behind Queen coming up next was David Bowie. So David Bowie's instruments, we made sure that all of the drum set that was accurate to what was back there at the time, every every little detail, down to the, the dimension of the ring around the Pepsi cup, every symbol was exactly what, what uh, Roger Taylor played on the day he played. In fact, uh, Roger Taylor brought his symbols to the set so we could shoot with them on that day. Uh, it all just comes together in this really wild, amazing way and that first day that those actors got up there and it wasn't even a dress rehearsal it was just in their civilian clothes and they went up there and did their performance mm -hmm. the whole live aid performance we were all blown away brian may was standing right next to me and he said the hairs on the back of my neck are on end this is the most surreal moment of my life <laughs> i i understand he's uh went back to cambridge or something and got a phd in nuclear physics or something uh, like astrophysics. that astrophysics astrophysics uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> quite an amazing character yeah, yeah he's a he's a really brilliant and just sweet gentleman. He's also a very big environmentalist. His cause is like protecting hedgehogs and foxes. Yeah, great. You know? They were all so kind and so generous. He invited us to his house uh, to go through his archives so I could look at the original recordings of every Queen album were right there, like all the original tapes, yeah. all the original artwork. He is a notorious, I'll say hoarder, but collector of mm. everything. So he had literally the itinerary that his father had written for the first tour that they ever made, just on a piece of scrap of paper, stuck in a plastic sleeve in this archive in his barn. Every costume they ever wore. The guitar he still plays, yeah. he built 
out of a fireplace mantle with his father when he was 16 years old. That'd be tired. Yeah. yeah. Um, but made all the electrical coils himself, made the pickups himself, did all yeah. the wiring. He's a really remarkable character. I have to ask, we're, we're coming toward the end now, but as, as we've talked through your career, we've seen you learn a basic job, a model building, and then you become a chief model maker, and then you become interested in art design, production design, and so forth. And then as you describe the work you did on Bohemian Rhapsody and the fact that Brian Singer wasn't that involved initially, and you guys were doing a lot of your own work, it strikes me that you're learning to be a director. That is, <laughs> that's how I feel as well, and that's, mm-hmm. that's exactly right. That is something that I've enjoyed and wanted to do for a long time, and why I spent years, 20 years ago, doing music videos where I was like, okay, this is the path forward. But I got sidetracked and fell in love with the process that I was doing. I loved designing and I loved the art direction side of things and it paid. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, I was working on music videos that didn't pay so well. In, in my late 20s with another friend of mine, we followed a 19-year-old Katy Perry around Paris with video cameras when we were yeah. all just wee little people. Didn't make any money doing that. But today, I, every time I go into a movie with whomever I'm working with, I'm trying to learn the whole process. Writing, I've been writing films, really studying with the directors. So I've done two films now with Elizabeth Banks, who's an actor yeah. who brings something totally different as a director than some of the other people that I work with. So I went straight from Brian to Liz Banks and seeing how she pays attention to every little detail. But at the same time, she wants to focus on the actors and make sure that she surrounds herself with people that are going to do those jobs really well so that she can focus on getting performance and telling a story, but having a great time while doing it. That has been such a gift to watch her process. And we have a movie coming out in a few weeks called Cocaine Bear. Yeah, yeah. I saw I saw that it was on the list. Yeah. So that's with, that's with Elizabeth Banks. Yes. Yeah. Right. I was doing a show called The Stand. That's a Stephen King sci-fi thing about an epidemic yes. in the future. A viral know. pandemic that, that wiped out 90% of the world. And so we're filming that. We spent a year on that project. This was in March of... 2020. We were living in Vancouver and the family were coming here for spring break and I was going to Las Vegas to shoot three days of work there and then we were going to be done. Get to Las Vegas, we're about to shoot and suddenly the border closes down. California went into crisis mode like that day we were in Las Vegas. And of course we're primed for like, oh my God, this is the end of the world because this is what we've been doing. I've got all the research on it. I spent a, a year making this show about everybody. So it was a frightening time. So when we came back home to Mendocino in March of 2020, we were ready to hunker down and didn't know if I'd work again for however long because nobody wants to make a movie when you could be killed from taking your mask off. Within a month or so of being home, I got a call from another amazing director, uh, Gore Verbinski, who did the Pirates of the Caribbean movies and the animated film Rango, among many other things, The Ring and amazing films, about doing an animated film. So I was able to work on this animated film for two and a half years from home, from here. But there was a certain point in that, about a year and a half ago, when they said, okay, we have to spend some time recording all the actors on the movie before we can start animation. We're gonna go quiet for a little while, And at that same time, Elizabeth Banks called and said, we want to go make this movie. Short and sweet. Let's go do it. We went over to Ireland, of all places. It's meant to be Georgia, as you'll see in the movie. (laughs) But we ended up shooting it in Ireland, which was just incredible. Really fell in love with it over there. I was an exchange student in Dublin for a year. Oh, great. In the 73, 74. Where where did you go to school? Trinity College in Dublin. A beautiful, beautiful campus. Yeah, yeah, we went and visited for a little bit because that library is just so stunning. It's always been one of the most beautiful architectural places in the world and so it was really fun to go see that yeah. um, we had so much fun making that movie during a pandemic in another country 
there are difficulties, obviously, with being abroad and doing that sort of thing and wearing an N95 all day, every day. Mm -hmm. If you can take a scenario like that where you're working in adverse conditions in the rain and the mud and all the other issues that come with shooting a movie mostly outdoors in Ireland, just barely wet, and you can have fun doing it, that's that's a gift. I feel so thankful for those opportunities to go work with people that she was like, I'm not going to go do this if we're not going to have a good time doing it. So surrounds herself by people who are competent and enjoy what they do. To your question, watching her work and watching somebody like Gore on an animated film is just such a learning experience and makes me a stronger filmmaker in general. I feel like I've taken the skills that I've learned on all these movies over the years and I think I'm close to 50 movies at this point under my belt and each of these it, it teaches me something new these last couple of years even though they've been very different I've learned a ton about being a filmmaker in general. I think that's a good place to end on because what I think I'm coming out of this interview with is a life as an artist in the film industry, but also somebody who's been keen to learn his mm. whole life. And I love that. And that for me is an inspiration, I think, for other artists. If you land in a spot, make the most of it and see what happens. Yeah. And then if there's lucky things that happen, great fortune, great. But also you're enjoying the moment yeah. and you're learning at the moment. So I think that's a wonderful thing. I've learned so much. Thank, thank you very much. Yeah, for... no, thank you for, for having the conversation. And, and I think you're speaking to exactly the right thing. Like I'm still hungry to do something different, something new and always will be. One of the things you learn as a filmmaker is that if you're telling a story, if nothing happens, your story's dead. For me as an individual, I know people who are very happy to be very still. I can't be still. I need to be doing something. I create because I have to. It's a compulsion. I think that's great, and that's a wonderful place to stop. And um, you have been wonderful to talk to. Thanks very much, Aaron Hay, and we've been lucky to have you on Snap Sessions. Thanks to our artist of the show, film production designer, Aaron Hay. Our production team includes tech meister producer Marshall Brown, writer-interviewer Doug Nunn, logo designer Daniel Stieglitz, and student interns Max Oatney and Frey Barty. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an outlook, both local and international, on the arts, and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Thanks to our Snappist Maximus contributors, Ron Hawksbrook and Rick and Henny Newman, and to our supportive snappers, Ellen Athens, Peter and Sheila Jowers, Kathy White, Dominique Jowers, John Bird, Gabriel Geiger, and Christine Samus. Other contributors include Steve Weingarten and Jerry Shook. These supporters help keep Snap Session snapping. Join the Snap Sessions family today. <laughs>